Tonight we're going to be reading from Jonah chapter 1, uh, verse 17, to chapter 2, verse 10. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Hi there, my name is Brian. I'm part of the ministry team here. Great to be with you this evening. Bryn, thank you for that reading. And Lucy, thank you for your encouragement, for your prayers, and for sharing uh, with us what you got up to in Fiji. Uh, really great to hear about what happened there. Um, keep your Bibles open at Jonah. We're going to be referring to that throughout. And I'm going to pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the power of your word, you created the universe and that by your word, you sustain it and uphold it. And we pray, Father, that as we hear your word tonight, that you would work powerfully in us, that you would shape and transform us to make us more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, there was a guy named Mickey Spillane. He was an American crime novelist who started writing in the late 1940s about his signature character, the hardened, violent, no-holds-barred private detective named Mike Hammer. Pretty cool name. Uh, I think it's far more impressive than my name or at least a bit more intimidating, but that's okay. Mike, name, uh, Mike Hammer was a very, very... Uh, intimidating guy. He was the guy who would go around solving crimes and bringing justice with a handgun on his hip and a rifle on his shoulder. Okay, that's the kind of writing this is. Uh, and now, what I find most convincing about Mickey Spillane is not his characters or the dialogue in the book. In fact, I'll be honest, I've never read it, nor do I intend on reading it. What I find particularly convincing about Mickey Spillane is this quote from him. He says, the most important part of the story is the ending. The most important part of the story is the ending. See, the book of Jonah could have finished in chapter 1, verse 16. What happened last week? Well, God told his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach against it. And Jonah decides, no, God, I don't want to do that. So he boards a ship, 
goes over the, land, over the sea to Tarship, but on the way, God sends a storm and Jonah is thrown overboard and he sinks into the bottom of the ocean. If that's how the story ended, what would that tell us about God? I think that would tell us that well, this God is not to be crossed. If you mess with this God, you're going to be sleeping with the fishes, literally. God always gets his man. But as you know, the story doesn't end there. In fact, what the book of Jonah wants to show us is not a hardened, violent, no-holds-bar kind of God. It wants to show us the exact opposite. In Jonah, we see a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He is not the God of destruction. He is the God of salvation. In fact, right now, there's another story unfolding, a story that you and I are living in. And knowing who God is, is going to shape the way that we all live and the end that we're pursuing. See, if we truly understand the depths of God's compassion and love, that's going to shape the way that we live and relate to people. I mean, if we truly know who our God is, not like Jonah who claimed that he knew his God, he worshipped his God, but actually his very life showed the opposite. If we truly know our God, then we will be a people who proclaim that salvation comes from the Lord. In fact, today we're going to see that he is the God who provides, the God who listens, and the God who saves. We're going to see that as we unpack this particular part of Jonah, and then we're going to spend some time connecting the story of Jonah to God's biggest story. But first, he is the God who provides. Uh, In verse 16, we left Jonah as he was sinking to the bottom of the ocean, but then we're told in verse 17 that the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. He is the God who provides. You know, it's no mere chance that there just so happened to be a great big fish swimming in the neighborhood. No, the Lord provided. In other words, it was part of God's deliberate, intentional, purposeful will. God provided it. Just as the Lord sent his word in chapter 1, verse 1, or the Lord sent his storm in chapter 1, verse 4, Now he sends a great fish to save Jonah as he sinks into the depths of the ocean. That's the kind of God that he is. He is so sovereign over his creation. There is not a single fish that doesn't swim on the path that God has set for it. God is so sovereign over his creation that there's not a single bird out there that doesn't fly or land on a branch except by God's will. The clouds, the moon, the sun, the stars, all of it happens and moves because God ordained it. In fact, in in chapter 4, God will continue to provide. He'll provide Jonah with a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind. Psalm 147 tells us that God determines the number of stars in the sky and he knows them by name. He's the God who is in control of all creation. 
You know, one of the questions that's come up in our series in Jonah is the question that you're probably all thinking, did Jonah really get swallowed by a great big fish? Uh, Sounds pretty amazing. Sounds like a miracle, doesn't it? And in one sense, it is. But I guess we then need to ask another question. What what do we mean when we say it's a miracle? Uh, For example, an 18th century Scottish philosopher, a guy named David Hume, he famously defined miracles in this way. He said, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. By the way, in case you're wondering, David Hume doesn't like this idea of miracles. In fact, his definition is trying to disprove that miracles even exist. Because he then goes on to say that as a firm and unalterable experience has established these laws of nature, the proof against any miracle from the nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. Uh, For those of you who don't speak 18th century Scottish philosopher, let me explain what he means. The argument against Jonah being swallowed by a whale is our collective experience of, well, I don't know anyone who's been swallowed by a whale. Sounds like a pretty good argument. But then when you think about it, for that to be true, we actually need to silence the words of Jonah, don't we? We need to silence anyone else who might claim the same thing to have happened to them. And as you know, silencing a witness is never a good way to come to the truth. The other problem with Hume's definition of a miracle, of course, is that it fails to address anything new. See, if you were to tell Hume that we now have these things called uh, aeroplanes and cars and computers, he would say, well, my experience tells me that those things don't exist. And so they couldn't possibly. That that sounds like a, a miracle, which, by the way, he thinks doesn't happen. I think we need to define a miracle in another way. I really like this definition from an Old Testament scholar. He says, a miracle is a divine act beyond human replication or explanation. See, I can't tell a fish where to swim. I can't tell a bird which branch to land on. But God can. God is in control of all creation And his providence knows no bounds. Which is an incredibly good thing. Because it means that if you're facing a really hard patch in life right now, if you're experiencing the frustration and the pain and the brokenness of our fallen world, you have hope. Because our God is a God who provides. Speaking about God's providence, the Apostle Paul says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. See, God is totally sovereign over his creation, which means that if your life right now is allegedly swim, or if your life feels like there's just waves crashing over you again and again, God is still working for good. He's using that to make you more like Christ. He is the God who provides. Second, he's the God who listens. Jonah 2 verse 1, Jonah calls out to God in prayer. And this is really big, actually, because if you remember in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah refused to call out to God. 
In fact, you might remember that the captain of the ship came up to him and he said, look, man, we're just trying every god we got here. We've tried ours. They're not listening. Give your god a go. And Jonah wouldn't get on the horn, all right? He's going, look, I'm not talking to God. We're not on speaking terms right now. Uh, But Jonah, despite hiding from God at that point, when he starts sinking into the ocean, he then cries out. And he says this, verse 2, in my distress... I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Uh, If any of you here tonight are carrying a different translation, you might notice that 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 phrase realm of the dead, you might have a different translation which says Sheol. Uh, Sheol, the realm of the dead. Uh, Jonah also says in verse 6 that he sank down to the roots of the mountains which sounds pretty weird until you stop and think about how Jonah thought about the world. This is the way that people would think about the world in the time when Jonah lived. You can see there that Sheol is this place below the earth. It was the underworld, Hades, as some people have referred to it. And you can see that the roots of the mountains, well, that's underneath the earth as well. In other words, Jonah is as far as physically possible from the God of the heavens. He is, in effect, as good as dead, without hope and without God. And yet, we read in the second half of verse 6, But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Sometimes we can think of God a bit like that diagram. He's he's far off there, he's distant, he's uninvolved with our world. But actually, as we look at the book of Jonah, we see that, well, God is near. That he provides for Jonah, he listens, he cares. Sometimes we might think that people are too far from God. And yet at the same time, even in the very heart of Sheol, God heard Jonah's cry and he raised him up from the dead. He is the God who listens no matter who, no matter where. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Sometimes we might feel distant from God. We might be reminded of our sin or our brokenness or our shame. But know, brothers and sisters, that he is the God who listens. And when you cry out to him, he will hear your call. He's the God who provides, the God who listens, and now the God who saves. See, in chapter 1, The sailors, they had all different kinds of gods, didn't they? And they all hoped that they would save them, but none of them were able to answer their call. They put their hope in worthless idols, things which were not able to bring them safety and security, which they longed for in that storm. And the same is true for anyone who turns away from God, who puts their hope and security in worthless things things that won't be able to provide or listen or save them. But God is able to save. And so Jonah vows in verse 9, he says, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you, 
what I have vowed I will make good, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. You know, as with a lot of Jonah, this verse is jam-packed with irony. I mean, it's with such great self-piety and hypocrisy that Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Jonah was the one who ran away from God, not the sailors, and yet he's talking about those people who turn away from God's love by worshipping idols. In fact, remember that the sailors, they made sacrifices and vows to God, and now Jonah thinks that he's ahead of the curve because he's doing that in chapter 2. There's a deep irony in that Jonah thinks what sets him apart, the sailors have already done, and the Ninevites are about to do. And yet, despite the irony, there's actually a great truth here, isn't there? That having experienced God's salvation, Jonah should now proclaim it. He should say, salvation comes from the Lord. That's what Jonah 2 shows us. He's the God who provides, the God who listens, and the God who saves. But as you know, Jonah is just one small story in God's much larger story. The story that goes from Genesis to Revelation, from garden to new creation. And at the center of that story is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of life, the Lord of love, and the Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord of life. You might remember that in Jonah 1.17, we're told that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And so as we read Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, we kind of know that Jonah's going to get out of this after a short time. And he is. I mean, at the end of the chapter, we see that the fish vomited Jonah back up onto dry land at the command of God. In fact, in the next chapter, Jonah's going to go into Nineveh and he's going to warn the people. He's going to say to them, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people will listen and repent. You know, it's nothing short of a miracle that Nineveh would repent at the word of God. Remember, they were a violent, arrogant, wicked, terrorist nation. And yet they would humbly repent when one man came and spoke God's word to them. And yet, in one sense, I can't help but think that as Jonah walked into Nineveh with his clothes and his hair and his skin bleached from being inside the stomach of a whale, I wonder if maybe that told the people of Nineveh to listen up to what this guy has to say. I wonder if he came into Nineveh with the odor of the Sydney fish market, which told you that this guy had been buried for the last three days in the belly of a great fish. I wonder if that spoke to them if it showed them that even though this guy was once near dead, he was saved and spared from death and destruction because of his God. In fact, I can't help but think that it was God's sovereign plan to cause the Ninevites to pay attention to Jonah's message, to believe, to repent, and be saved. Because when the Lord Jesus was asked by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to give them a sign, 
Jesus said to them, No sign will be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, just as Jonah being delivered from death was a sign to the Ninevites that they should believe his words and repent, so Jesus being delivered from death is a sign to us all. Elsewhere in the Bible, we have that explained for us. Acts 17, we hear that in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. He is the Lord of life which means that anyone who repents and trusts in the Lord Jesus will be saved. And yet we also need to know that the resurrection of Jesus means that he will judge the world. Not with a Mike Hammer kind of justice, no, with righteousness and truth. And all who repent and trust in Jesus will be delivered from death. Just as Nineveh paid attention to Jonah's words, let us pay attention to the words of Jesus, the Lord of life. Jesus is the Lord of life, and secondly, he's the Lord of love. Remember that it was Jonah who ran away from the Lord. He ran, and he didn't turn back to God until he was literally sinking into the heart of the ocean. And yet in verse 2, Jonah prayed, From deep in Sheol, the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. See, even though Jonah turned his back on God and abandoned his call, God's love remained. In fact, there's something incredibly rich in verse 8, which we can easily miss. Uh, When Jonah says in verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Well, this word which we have love is actually this really rich Hebrew word, which I think just one English word isn't enough to convey. Uh, The word here is hesed. Now, God's hesed love is not just love. It's love which is loyal, faithful steadfast and gracious. And that's the type of love that God shows Jonah. Even when he ran from God, God would not abandon him. That is how great God's faithful, steadfast, hesed love is. Which is the story of how God has loved us. Not with a cheap, flimsy, wayward love. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. In fact, we were like the prodigal son. We'd taken our early inheritance. We'd run away from our father. We'd squandered what he'd given us on wild living. And yet, God's word tells us that God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have been reconciled to God through the Lord of faithful love. 
is the Lord of life, the Lord of love, and now finally, the Lord of all. Because what Jonah cries out in the belly of that great fish is what we will all cry out when the story truly ends. See, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the Apostle John says this. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He then continues, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, that's where our story is heading. That's the end that God has written. We will stand before the throne of our God with countless people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we will declare the praises of our God because he is gracious and compassionate. The most important part of the story is the ending. And Jonah's story didn't end with him sinking into the bottom of the ocean Instead, we have seen tonight that our God is the God who provides. He's the God who listens. And he's the God who saves. And yet, Jonah's story is just part of God's bigger story, the story that runs from Genesis to Revelation, the story about Jesus, the Lord of life, the Lord of love, and the Lord of all. And so knowing what God has done and knowing what God will do let us proclaim the praises of him who caught us out of the darkness of death, out of the realm of the dead, into his marvelous light. Let us proclaim it to our neighbors, our family, and our friends. In fact, to be true to Jonah, let us proclaim it to our enemies also. Let us proclaim it so that all might know that salvation comes from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, in just three short weeks, we're kicking off our mission series in John's Gospel. Uh, four great Sundays to invite someone along to hear that uh, the great news, the gracious gift of life, security, and satisfaction that Jesus gives. A fresh start for anyone who would trust in him. And yet last week, you probably remember that Beta mentioned that from time to time, we can all struggle with evangelism. It doesn't come easy for any of us. In fact, I remember that when I finished school, I had these two close friends who were very far from the Lord. I won't tell you what they were doing, but let me just say that they were very far from the Lord. And despite year after year of continual prayer, inviting them to church, and just trying to be a Christian witness as we spent time hanging out, I spent the next 10 years watching them wander from him. And I'll be honest, at times I felt like giving up. I felt like my Christian witness wasn't doing anything. But then, 
I discovered that God is the God who provides, the God who listens, and he is the God who saves. And after 10 years of what I felt was a worthless witness, my friends came to follow the Lord Jesus. And I'm so glad and so thankful. You know, it blows my mind that God could save them from where they were 10 years ago to where they are now. But then again, God saved me. He saved you. And he continues to save. So do not be discouraged. Do not lose heart. Let us go out from here this week. Let us proclaim his salvation. Because salvation comes from the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who provides, the God who listens, and the God who saves. We thank you, Father, that you have called us out of the darkness of death into your marvelous light. And so we pray, Father, that as we go out this week, you would help us to proclaim your praises, that you would be glorified both now and into eternity. In Jesus' name we pray.